Wednesday, November 15, 2017, Born the Battle, brought to you by the Department of Veterans Affairs. I am Timothy Lawson, your host, and very excited to be on a normal schedule again this week. Last week was super busy as we were covering Veterans Day events and all the events that lead up to that. Had a podcast coming out every single day. Really appreciate the feedback and engagement we've had on those episodes. Sebastian Younger and Phil Clyde did a really great job talking about storytelling and the power that that has in our community. Mika Cross with a lot of great information on uh, how to find that job that you've been looking for, get that meaningful employment, advance your career, uh, whatever stage you are in. And then and then Craig Grossi routed off the week uh, with a really cool story about he, how he met his his best four-legged friend out in Afghanistan and found a way to bring him home. A lot of great stories and a really great week for, for featured interviews on the podcast. Monday, we had our benefits breakdown explaining how VA has a lot of social media accounts across our department, not just at the department level, but local facilities and how you can follow those accounts uh, either on Facebook or Twitter to stay up to date and engaged with your local facility uh, or administration that you receive your benefits through. Today's featured interview is with Navy veteran Alex Rushner. Alex is a uh, he works at Progressive Insurance, and he is involved in their Keys to Progress program, which uh, hooks up veterans that uh, need a little budge in life, could use just a little bit of luck, uh, and they hook them up with with a set of wheels to get them going uh, again in their in their life and help them uh, progress further uh, in what they're trying to accomplish. Before we get there, I'm going to play some audio from Secretary Shulkin's talk at the Veterans Day event at Arlington Cemetery that went on Saturday morning. Uh, I think it's some Secretary Shulkin introduces four veterans that he had there at the event. And uh, I just think his introductions and the quick stories on their service uh, are pretty cool. And it's a nice little sample of, of the veterans that we serve here at VA. The Department of Veteran Affairs has two main missions, to honor the dead and care for the living in accordance with the solemn promise made by President Abraham Lincoln in his second inaugural address in 1865. We at VA keep that promise 365 days a year. And this past year, we've made great progress towards also keeping President Trump's promise to veterans, strengthening our ability to provide timely, high quality care and benefits while also improving outcomes and experience for veterans. But twice a year, we invite the nation to join us in keeping Lincoln's promise by honoring the dead on Memorial Day and honoring the living on Veterans Day. There was a time when more Americans understood the importance of honoring the living. Many more Americans had connections with the military. In the 1950s, nearly half of all Americans, 45%, had either served in the military or had an immediate family member who had served in the military. Today, that number is just 16%. So I've invited one veteran from each of our recent major conflicts to be here today to remind us why we honor veterans. First, to my left in box 40 is Jessica Halton of Kalamazoo, Michigan. Jessica, would you stand? Jess ran out of money for college, so she enlisted in the Navy in 2010. 
trained as an aircraft mechanic. She served with an E-2C Hawkeye squadron at Atsugi, Japan, completing three six-month cruises with the squadron aboard the USS George Washington. Then after four years on active duty, she used the GI Bill to finish her bachelor's degree and earn a master's degree in national security policy, which she will finish in May. Congratulations, Jess, and thank you for your service. Next, in box 40, Jeff Roper. Jeff, would you stand? Jeff? Jeff was born in Fayetteville, North Carolina, raised in Richmond, Virginia. Jeff was a sergeant in the Gulf War with the second of the 327th Infantry, 101st Airborne Division. He was encamped with his squad in Saudi Arabia when an anti-tank round went through the camp. The round struck the tent next to Jeff's and exploded, peppering Jeff's back with shrapnel. Thankfully, Jeff was not seriously injured and was able to remain with his unit. He retired from the Army in 2006 with 20 years of service, and now he works in my office at the Department of Veteran Affairs. He's here today representing both Gulf War veterans and VA employees, one-third of whom are veterans. Thank you, Jeff. Next, down here in front is Tom Devlin from Newtown, Pennsylvania. Tom, where are you? Okay. Tom enlisted in the Marines in 1966. Two years later, he was a rifleman in Vietnam when a booby trap sent him flying through the air. He spent the 1968 Tet Offensive in the hospital in Da Nang. After Vietnam, Tom served nine years in the Marine Corps Reserves before switching services and joining the Air National Guard as a medic. He's retired now after 27 years of active service. Tom credits the Vet Center in Silver Spring, Maryland with saving his life. He showed up there one day at his wit's end thinking of suicide, but the Vet Center staff brought him back from the brink. Tom, to you and all other Vietnam veterans, welcome home. Next, in box 40 in the back is Bill Scott of Marlowe, Oklahoma. Bill, would you stand? Coming up there, great. True to his roots as a proud member of the Chickasaw Nation, Bill fudged his birth date to enlist in the National Guard when he was just 16. When the Korean War broke out, he could have used his young age to get out of going, but he didn't. He deployed to Korea with, his, with the 45th Infantry Division in 1951. Despite his age, Bill was made a squad leader and was promoted to Staff Sergeant. He served nine months in combat before returning home, going back to high school for his senior year. Then, then he used the GI Bill to go to college, and he's had a very good life ever since. He's been a patient at VA facilities in two states. He's bought two houses using VA home loans, and he lives in one of them now with Linda, his wife of 52 years. Congratulations to both of you. Finally, also in box 40, is Carmel Wetzel, who grew up on a farm in West Virginia. Carmel, nice to see you. <laughs> Carmel was drafted in 1942 and deployed to France with the 26th Infantry Division one month after D-Day. First, he drove a truck for the famed Red Ball Express 
an endless convoy that moved food, fuel, and ammunition from the English Channel to Patton's Third Army. Later, he saw combat with a heavy weapons company until November 1st, 1944, when amid fierce fighting, he was captured by the Germans. He spent the rest of the war as a POW, mostly at Stalag 2A, north of Berlin. Breakfast was a cup of tea, lunch was two rutabagas, dinner was one-sixth of a loaf of bread. Carmel escaped once with two other men by sneaking out the front door of the barracks during a nighttime bed check. They remained at large for 15 days before they were recaptured and were only not shot because several Americans who had escaped just before them had been shot. After the war, Carmel went back to driving a truck. But for two years in his spare time and without any pay, he built apartments in Baltimore for other veterans returning home from the war. Amazing stories. And there's hardly a veteran alive who doesn't have one. All right, here we go. Navy veteran Alex Rushner, Progressive Insurance, talking to us about the Keys to Progress program uh, and a few other things regarding his service, transition, uh, and other parts of, of his career. Enjoy. In the fabric of America, they are the toughest threads. One of the first things they learned was the code that every service member lives by. Leave no one behind. Now all of us need to live by it too, because some veterans are being left behind. 20 of them take their own lives every day. Learn how to be there for a veteran at betherefoveterans.com. Honor the code. Be there. Leave no one behind. So, I believe so. Alex Rushner, Navy veteran, senior trainer at Progressive Insurance. Um, what was the official? Is, is it Progressive Insurance? Progressive? Uh, what's yeah, the, uh, we just generically say Progressive, right. but um, it, from like a legal term, it would be Progressive Group of Insurance Companies because just because of how the insurance industry is regulated, each state has its own underwriting state con- uh, company. Gotcha. Okay. Very well. Well, sir, thank you so much for uh, for joining us. We are going to start this interview where we start, start all interviews, and that's the decision to join the United States military. It's the one thing that all of us veterans have in common. Bring us back to that decision for you. So the reason I chose to join the military, um, I was kind of, after I graduated high school, I was kind of at a, uh, at a at, well, I guess we can say a fork in my life where I was like, am I going to try and go to school? which I didn't have a scholarship or anything. And I'm sitting here looking at friends of mine and talking to friends and everybody who's incurring thousands of dollars of student loan debt and all this stuff. And I'm like, do I want to do that? Plus I was um, full disclosure. I was not hanging with probably the, the, the best friends I could have hung out with. So we weren't making the best of decisions. So I knew at the end of the day, it was like, should I, how do I put myself into a better position than what I'm at now? Well, I can go to school and I can incur thousands upon thousands of dollars in student loans to bury myself out, or I can follow in the footsteps of my family, which would be to join the service. Um, and reason I say follow in the footsteps of my family is my dad spent 22 years in between the Army and Air Force. My older brother was Marine Corps. My grandpa on my, my mom's side was um, Army, actually in the first wave of infantry during D-Day. And, you know, on my dad's side, another another Army veteran. So I'm like... You know, through my mom's side and my dad's side for at least three generations, all the men have served their country. So I'm like, all right, either go out and incur a bunch of debt or follow in the footsteps of the family. So I joined the service. Yeah. 
You said to your grandfather uh, first wave at on D Day on Omaha Beach. Um, actually, he was in Normandy. Yeah, Normandy. Okay. Wow. Do you, yeah. you, you, do you ever get a chance to talk to him about that? I I did a couple times. Um, like after, so the grandfather that did Normandy. I don't. I'll be honest. I don't remember all the all the ins and outs of storytelling. Right. He he passed away in '88, and I was 10 years old when he passed away. So I do remember hearing some stories talking about the war and stuff when I was growing up. But for the most part, it's just hearing them through through my dad, you know. And he was awarded two Purple Hearts because of it, you know. I mean, he was wounded twice in combat, but the uh... you know. And then my grandpa on my on my mom's side, he he was also. I think he was actually a. He was a combat engineer, I believe, was his title. But he was he was uh, my, on my mom's side. He was on he was in one of the not the first wave that went in, but he was in one of the part of the um, storming of the D Day beaches. Okay. And I don't know which one it was, but I know both my grandparents were. So yeah, yeah, uh, you know, we go to um, you know, there's events down at the World War II Memorial here in Washington D.C. occasionally, and uh, every time I go and I talk to the veterans down there, I'm like, man, these dudes will, are better than I'll ever be. <laughs> yeah, I tell you, man, I, I, when I was in Virginia Beach, so I spent eight years in Virginia Beach when I was um, stationed over there before I got moved over to San Diego, and we made it up to D.C. probably about five or six times. And every time I would get up there, I try and get to all the memorials, and it's just. It's it's very very moving for me. It, it's it's just an an eerie silence every time you get there, just out of respect for the memorial and and you know I really also I really love DC because of all the memorials and the history that it has. Yeah, the uh, uh, not to go too, too much of a tangent, but um, I think if anybody listening, if you're ever in Washington DC, uh, just go hang out around the Vietnam War Memorial for like 20 minutes um, and just sort of watch people like approach the memorial watch people interact with each other it's 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 uh it's sobering um it is yeah alex uh the name of the show is born the battle um you know tell us about a um a battle that you faced while you were in in the military whether that is literal combat or another challenge or sacrifice that um that you dealt with while you're in any sort of difficulty that you sort of bore as a service member um Honestly, I think just by nature of being a service member, you you kind of sign up for that difficulty that you're going to bear on a daily basis just because of what you're signing up for and the sacrifices that you do, you know, with um, all the training and the workups, preparing for deployments, you know, and then all your duty days and everything else you do. But I think if I was going to say the the biggest, most challenging combat for me would be trying to balance the the needs that you have in the military and your job duties and everything you need to do in order to serve our country, um, balance that with your family. You know, I think that was some of the biggest challenges I had. Um, you know, I mean, I loved, I loved the military. I loved what I did. I was, a um, I, I was a weapons tech by, by job. So I was an ordinance guy and, um, you know, I, I went shore duty and took on law enforcement duties and ended up running the training office at a police precinct. So, I mean, I just love doing it. I was an ATFP instructor. So all four tours that I did, the first two that I did, I was a weapons tech. So I was doing all the ordnance. So I wasn't in country in like, you know, infantry style combat, but we were doing all the ordnance and ammunition for the, um, for all the aircraft, um, bombing runs or missile runs or whatever the missions were at those times. 
Um, and then my last two, I was actually an, um, I was an instructor, an ATSP instructor. So, um, I, I trained all of the security force personnel and stuff to go out and, um, help actually what it was, was help army with, uh, security and convoys. And, um, so that was what it was, but I think all of that really from a balance and a combat side of the house, I was really passionate about training and making sure that my guys knew what they had to do and were trained and developed and ready to go for their job. So that, cause if they were trained, then they weren't, I was setting them up for failure if they're going into country. Right. So that was, that was a big challenge for me, but I think my biggest battle that I had to, to do was really, you know, figure out how I could do that work-life balance. And, and, you know, after my fourth tour, my now 12 year old, was 11 months when I left and almost 19 months when I got home and she didn't know who I was. It took her two, two and a half weeks to warm back up to me. Like at the airport, when my wife and everyone was coming to get me, I tried to grab her and she wanted nothing to do with me. She pulled away and went right back to my mom because my mom came down to spend, you know, about four or five months with my wife to help the family. So I'm just like, Ooh, yeah. Yeah. Family or service, family or service. It's, it's really a hard challenge to, especially with my roots, you know what I mean? Cause of my history with my dad, my brothers, my grandparents, you know, it's like, do we continue to serve our country or do I have to make that sacrifice and serve my family? And after eight and a half years, I said, I'm going to serve my family. Yeah. So, wait, um, okay. So then that, I guess that brings us into the third question of what prompted your transition out. But, um, is, was that the, was that the main catalyst for that decision was deciding to commit more to your family? Yeah, yeah, it absolutely was. And honestly, I knew it was going to be a challenge because when I separated, I separated out of San Diego. And in San Diego, I separated in 06. And during that time, it was very high cost of living, housing prices, everything were crazy high. Everything was, you know, expensive. And when I separated, I took greater than a 50% pay cut um, by separating. And I knew I would because I was eight plus years in the service. So I had time in service. I was in E6 already when I got out. So I had a lot of stuff going for me. And um, when I got out, I knew I was going to take a huge pay cut. So these are the things that I had to balance and sacrifice. And I'm like, okay, what are we going to do to prepare ourselves? So financially, by me making this transition to be here for the family in physical, mental, everything, being here for the family, now how can I do it financially too? So that was a, a big, hard um, transition when I did that as well. Um, and, and so what we ended up doing was planning for about a year and a half of doing the best we could do to save money and everything. Cause I knew we were going to, you know, be really hurting real bad. Cause ultimately my house in San Diego, I was paying over $3,000 a month for my mortgage payment. And when I separated from the service, I wasn't even making that and take home money with my new job. So I'm like, Oh geez. So, so we had a bunch of money um, set up as emergency savings to kind of live on. But you know, I ate through that so fast, I couldn't do anything. So that was the hardest thing. And the most scary thing was how can I financially do this and set myself up so that I can separate from the service and actually still be able to take care of the family. Yeah. You know, and it was a challenge too, because everybody in, when you're in for eight years, everybody you're working with, and E6 with eight years in, everybody, I mean, literally I had 100% of everyone I was talking to was convincing me, yeah, you're not going to get out. You you can't succeed out there da, 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 and all this stuff and trying to keep me in essentially. So that made it a little bit more challenging too. And I'm, and I'm sure the reason they wanted to keep me in was for my background, my performance and everything else, but it made it more challenging. Like, you know, what, what decisions should I make? How do I go about doing this? Yeah. I know a lot, a lot of veterans, when they separate from the service, they experience some sort of emotional crisis or at least a uh, emotional dilemma. Um, you know, with whatever you're comfortable with sharing, is that anything that you experience as well? 
Yeah, for me, it was, I, I don't know. Yeah, I would call it an emotional dilemma, but I think I would refer to it more as separation anxiety. Um, and what I mean by that is because, so my background was all weapons, training, tactics, all of that stuff. And I, and I really enjoyed it. And honestly, I, you know, I, I did a lot of, like I trained with, I got EOD training for uh, ordnance and explosive and stuff. I trained with SEAL Team 8 for a while and did a bunch of that stuff. So what I really missed about it, honestly, was the camaraderie that you get and the training and, and, and just the, the, the relationships you build with the guys that are fighting to your left and right. And then the big change and the transition that was so hard to me is that military mentality of being an E6, you know, you deal with people that have discipline, that understand orders, that, you know what I mean? And then I get into corporate America and I'm like, I'm getting feedback all the time about, Alex, you can't be that direct with people. You can't talk to people that way. You can't. I'm like, really? I mean, we're all adults here, right? I mean, come on, why can't I just tell someone what to do? I have to be politically correct and ask them in a nice way and say please and thank you. So that was for as a transition point for me, not to say that I'm I'm rude, but it was it was it was a challenge to learn how to adapt and function in corporate America separate from military. Yeah. Absolutely. Let it, um how long did it take you to find uh that renewed purpose that so many veterans are searching for after they transition? Um, I honestly, I think I'm still transitioning part of it. And the reason, the reason I say that is because, um, I grew up in a very structured military family, much less, you know, having served in the service. So I grew up in that very strict, very disciplined, very routine, very standardized household. Um, so that's my mentality. That's my character. I apply that. So for me, I, I was a shoe right into the military. It made sense. Everything, it made sense. I got to deal with people with discipline. I, you know, the whole nine yards, I could say something. The recipient of the message would listen. They would apply it. They'd hear Being in corporate America, it's totally different. You know? Yeah. So how did you, how did you, when did you start with progressive then? So I actually started with progressive pretty much when I separated. I separated in August, um, 06. And I actually applied and started with Progressive in July of 07. Um, there I was, I was a department manager in a retail establishment for a few months in the interim. But other than that, there wasn't really anything else. So I started with Progressive back then. And I would just say it was a transition from military service. Because at the time, I was also applying for federal law enforcement. So I was in the hiring process with FBI and federal marshal for a long time, too. So I would essentially just say it was a transition from service to progressive because that's yeah. really all I've done. Interesting. So, so tell us then about keys to progress. Uh, that's a, um, a program that uh, you're involved in. It's, it's how um, a, um, a uh, Michael Taylor, a, a colleague of mine introduced you uh, because of the success of this program. Can you just explain to the audience briefly what it is? And yeah, I'll start with there. What, what is keys to progress? So Keys to Progress is a program that we put on, and we would be progressive, my employer. Um, so what we do is we put on this program every year, and we've actually trademarked it as Keys to Progress as well. Um, so uh, it's, it's our version of what we say giving back or giving freedom back to those who have fought for our freedom. That's kind of our slogan or our mission behind it. And what we do is we just work with a lot of our business partners, so like Enterprise Rental Car. They're one of our business partners, um, Copart. Salvage uh, is another one, insurance auto auction. So we work with our partners 
um, as well as the National Auto Body Council and the body shops that we use through handling claims that we uh, and taking care of our customers. And we end up working with all of them to rebuild and newly refurbish vehicles and then donate those vehicles back to veterans. And we do it each year. Um, so the program runs, generally speaking, from about May until November. Um, but from May until September is when we have what we call our application process. So that's when the applications are coming in. So what we do is we reach out to veteran organizations or veteran-friendly charities um, and ask them to identify veterans that are in need of a vehicle. That's really what it's about because as an insurer, we don't know all of the veterans out there in need. Folks like you guys and, and VA and VFW and, and those organizations, they'll know the veterans that are in need. So we reach out to them and, and take kind of a grassroots approach and say, hey, try and uh, get some veterans referred over to us. And then ultimately we send out the application, which has the criteria, get it sent over, and then collect all the applications and send them out to all of our local business units for them to select the veteran they want to donate the vehicle to. So the application process ends in September because at the um, so in September October timeframe is when um, we start doing all of the titling paperwork and everything else for all of the veterans that have been selected, and then we do a one-time donation event on or near Veterans Day each year where we donate 100 plus vehicles to veterans nationwide. This year we're doing 115 vehicles, donating them in 68 locations countrywide. And with this year, it's our fifth year, so we're celebrating it as our fifth annual year doing it. Um, and then we're also advertising or, 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 or proud of, I guess we could say, donating in excess of 500 vehicles so far with this being our fifth year. So once on November 9th, which is the ceremony this year, we're donating the 115 more, which is going to put us in excess of 500 since we've started the program. That's amazing. What, I apologize if you if, if I missed this in, in your description, but is there a criteria that the veteran has to meet, or is it the is it the organization that's identifying the veteran, and they're the ones that are that are that are qualifying the veteran? Um, so we set certain standards on qualification criteria. So ultimately, qualification criteria that we've set is they have to be a veteran, so they have to show proof of veteran status. Um, if they were active duty, they'd show us a copy of their DD-214, so it shows their discharge status, all that stuff. Um, but we don't stop with just DD-214, because if you're a National Guard or reservist, you don't get a DD-214, you get a different DD form. So as long as you can show some sort of form of veteran status, whether it was active duty military, reservist, National Guard, we consider all of those to be forms of veteran status, because those forms from progressive eyes have all signed up to serve our country. So what we do is that's one. And then obviously they need to be in some sort of um, financial hardship or some sort of need of transportation. Um, obviously the objective here is if, if a veteran is out quite successful, um, doing well with their you know, job, their career, making a hundred plus thousand dollars a year. And, and, and they say, oh, we look at this program, a free car. Let me apply for it. I want to just free car because I don't want to buy a new one. Obviously that's not a good candidate of what we're looking for because they're successful. They don't need the help. What we're trying to do, the program is, is driven around trying to give a hand up and not a hand out. So it's the, it's the people that are out there going through some tough times or, or challenges and don't have a vehicle or have an old vehicle and the vehicle's unreliable and it keeps breaking down. So they're losing jobs because they don't have reliable transportation and they want to hold a job and they want to take care of their family. It's these are the veterans that we're trying to, to target and those are the ones we want to apply. 
So based on that, there are some income thresholds that we set as well. Um, and the income thresholds are actually done by the VA means testing. That's what we use. So essentially what the VA means testing uses, we've just piggybacked on that and said, we're going to go with that based on your uh, geographic area. So there is some, you know, obviously veteran status because it's targeted to veterans um, and then income thresholds. And then the other thing we do is, is we do complete a background check. Um, obviously, from a, a branding approach, we don't want to throw ourselves out there in, in a bad way if we donate something to um, somebody who's had some sort of bad background or something that's going to, you know, be something not good publicly for progressive or for anyone else involved. So um, those are essentially the only really criteria we have is is we don't want to we don't want somebody who's financially successful and um, prosperous trying to come just take take something like this where there's others that may need it more. And then obviously their veteran status and then just a clean background. Um, and then obviously the other last thing we look at is the motor vehicle report. Since we're donating a vehicle to someone, we want to make sure that they have, um, it doesn't have to be a clean driving record, but what we say is no major infractions over the previous seven years. And we're defining major infractions as, you know, reckless driving, DUIs, eluding the police, things like this. Seating tickets, parking tickets, we're all human. We know these happen. Those are not anything bad. Um, and then the other thing we look at is their discharge status. So dishonorable discharge and bad conduct discharge are non-qualifiable. Other than that, if it's honorable, general under honorable conditions, all those are acceptable. Um, and that's really, I mean, so we set some of that criteria out when we talk to the um, organizations and charitable contacts that we're working with. So we just kind of set that out. And then the charitable contacts are the ones that work with the veterans and, and, and they're the ones that refer over the veterans that they believe fit that criteria. And that's kind of how we identify them. That's amazing. It's, um, I mean, do you, can you recall like a, like a, um, like a, significant or memorable success story maybe with one of these veterans that received one of these cars? Um, I mean, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if you're, one... is, I don't know if you're in touch enough with the veterans who are receiving the cars to be aware of that, but I just thought if you had a story, this would be a great time to share it. Yeah. Um, I am. I'm actually, I run the recipient team. So me and my team are okay. the ones who will go out and work with charity. So I get to, I get the privilege and I, and I definitely say privilege. Because I get the privilege of being able to review probably 80 or 90% of the applications and read the stories from these veterans. Because part of the application process, the veteran tells us their story on how they're in this position that they're in and how this vehicle is going to help them improve their life and take care of their community, their family, or whatever. So I get the privilege of being able to read these, which, which I love because they're very moving. So one that actually really impacted me this year that, you know, honestly, I, I, I lost some sleep over it at night and uh, told my wife about the whole story and went back in. Um, but anyway, it's a, it's a gentleman. I, I, I have not actually received his permission to relieve, release names and everything. So we'll just say he's a gentleman in Florida that, um, he's working with, he's a Vietnam and Korea war era veteran. He's in his low seventies and he is, um, working with a pro bono VA attorney that volunteers her services to help veterans in need with legal matters. So I'm like, okay, that's kind of weird. What, what legal matters are, well, okay, let me just find out what's going on before I assume that. So the legal matters that, and how the attorney got our information was through VA, but the legal matters he's working with was um, he's fighting for custody of his grandchildren. And the reason he's fighting for custody of his grandchildren, and this came from his words right to him to me, was because my daughter's not competent enough to be their parents. 
So apparently his grandchildren have some medical problems. Um, one of them has spina bifida, is, is almost nine years old, and has never walked in his life because of his uh, medical condition. Long story short, um, the Shriner Hospital in Tampa has volunteered to treat his grandson. But the problem is he lives in Ocala, which is about 100 miles away, and he has a 1984 Buick Regal that keeps dying on him. So he couldn't accept the offer to help his grandchild get better. Um, so, long, so what I did is I uh, essentially found out this gentleman's story, got his application, forwarded it to my Orlando site. Orlando had already started selecting their veterans. They couldn't get him in. So I took it from Orlando and sent him down to Tampa. That didn't work out either. Took it over to Miami, even though this is by this point, Miami from Ocala is now, we're talking three-hour drive. And just based on how moved I was with this gentleman's story, I'm like, we, we got to take care of this guy. So I reached out to my Miami um, leadership group, and it was just so happened to be the same day that I forwarded um, this gentleman's application and package to the leadership group in Miami. It was the same day they were interviewing their local veteran as a potential candidate. So they ended up selecting the local veteran, leaving this particular person out again. So this was my third, third attempt. And at this point, I'm like, look, this is the target veteran of what this program is all about. We can't let this one go without being addressed. So um, the, the Miami leadership group, essentially, the manager called me the next day and was like, look, I lost sleep last night hearing this guy's story and knowing that I had to turn him down and, and that, you know, Shiner Hospital is trying to do this and his, all the stuff that can help with the son. We got to do something. So in Florida, my, my, my Florida business unit leadership group got together and found in Jacksonville, they were able to find an additional vehicle in Jacksonville. So we added an additional vehicle to our pool of vehicles to donate this year, way late in the year, just to take care of this gentleman because of how moved we were by his story and how, how it's going to benefit him. And when we were able to reach out to him to say, hey, we, we, we got you taken care of. We're going to get you a car. We're, congratulations, we are. And, and we're sending him out to Jacksonville. He was so moved by it, he broke down. Now, this is a 70-year-old gentleman. Um, and he broke down emotionally and said, you know what this means to me? And the manager in Jacksonville and the manager in Miami, because um, we were on a conference call, and they were like, no, no, sir, what does this mean? He said, this means before I die, I get to see my grandson walk. Hmm. That's amazing. That's so it's it's those stories Oof. that really move me. Someone cutting onions. And really, in you know what I mean. And really, <laughs> um, keep me coming back to it every year. So that one really was really impacted me. Wow, that's um. Sorry, I'm wrapping my head around uh, that story. That's um. I, I mean, it gives me the chills when I tell yeah. that story because. It's, you know, great, I've never it's a great close, man. too, by the way. Who has the film rights to that story? Because that's, uh, that's a right? good one. Yeah. Um, right? I mean, I, and to be honest with you, full disclosure, this gentleman and his attorney, the pro bono attorney I was talking about, they were so moved by it. I received thank you cards at my work yesterday from him and his family as well as from his attorney in her office because of how much that I was advocating for him after hearing his story trying to get him in and making sure he got taken care of. And at the end of the day, I'm like sitting here going, this was, this was not me. I mean, I really appreciate the thank you, but you guys have to understand this was a lot more than just me. 
So I was going to, um, based on those cards, I'm taking pictures of them and, and the uh, photo and shooting an email out, essentially a thank you email to all the folks that were involved. And I'm sharing in that because it was so, it was so moving. I've been part of this program for since day one. And this is the first time anyone actually taken the time to go out and do something so minimal as just a thank you card because of how moved they were by it. And to be honest with you, for me, it's more moving for me to be able to be in a position where I am now to where I can donate my time, energy, and effort, and then work for an employer like progressive that does back our veterans so much, you know? Yeah. That's wow. Um, are there any, you know, we arranged this interview to talk about keys of progress. Um, keys, man, see, like, is it keys two, keys four progress? Look, you got, I'm all sorts of it's keys two. keys two. I'm all so, sorts, yeah. sorts of turned around on this now. Um, are there any other are there any other programs? Is there even is there does Progressive have a discount? I'm just curious. Like, does what else does Progressive offer that maybe veterans can consider or, or maybe be qualified for? Um, I, know it, I know I didn't prime you for this question, so if the answer is nothing, yeah. I'll just edit this out and it won't. Well, be. I can tell you from an uh, from a, well from an insurance related stuff. Um, we don't have like a military discount on your premiums. Um. So there's there's not like things like that. But what I can tell you is from Progressive, um, we employ – so we're very, very military-friendly. Um, we employ over 1,200 veterans in our employment staff right now. Um, so now that may, that may seem like a big number in 1,200. We have about 30,000 employees. So 1,200 of them, to me, that's – I mean, I, I don't know numbers out there, but that to me is about probably like 5, 4, 5, 6%, something like that already. So I think that's I think that's a good thing. So we target that. That's number one. Number two, from an employment standpoint, not only do we support veterans so well in that we also um, we, we give job security for anyone who's called up for any veteran called for national um, um, national guard or for when they're called up for active reserve. We still, I mean, they're paid as as an employee still. They don't, you know. So we pay for military time. So there's a lot of support in that. We also have. Um, what we call an ERG, which is an employee resource group. Um, and these are done at the nation, national level. So we have people scattered throughout the nation in these groups. And the reason I bring that up is the employee resource group I'm talking about is called Milnet, which is our military network. So we actually have it set up. I'm a member of it because I'm a, I'm a veteran. So, And what we do is we just do different events that we support military military-friendly organizations, you know, one event per month in different locations. So we're always doing things like this around that as an employer to help veterans. Um, so what I would say is around, around those, it's more of us donating to help whether through events or stuff like that. But when it comes to like discounts and um, like monetary things, there's not a lot that progressive does because, you know, being in the insurance side of the house, it's not like we sell a product to right. somebody. We're selling a contract. Yep. Uh, no, I get that. Um, Couple questions to, to wrap this up. First one, um, what is, give me something from your military service, whether it be a skill set, a discipline, whatever it may be, um, that you feel is contributing to your success today. Um, I think the biggest skill set is just discipline and accountability. Really, I mean, the military is all about discipline and accountability and leadership. Um. You know, and I think because I was because I spent so much time in the service, I got different leadership um, training stuff that I went through as I advanced through the ranks in the in the service. And I think if I was to, if I can say there was any skills that I took from the service to insurance, because my background in the service was weapons, tactics, anti-terrorism, 
force protection, those things. And then I go into insurance. It's like, how is there anything related to that? Well, the only thing I could say is related to it is just the, the pure discipline, the work ethic, the, you know, the accountability, being accountable for your own actions and self-accountability that you're required to have in the service. You know, I, I, I see that as my core character and what I do on a daily basis. And, and I see in the normal civilian workplace, you don't have all of that. It's not what I would say standard operating procedure for everyone to have self-accountability. Um, in the civilian workplace, I see people will try and get away with what they can get away with. You know what I mean? And I think that's the big thing that from the military side, it, it taught me is take care of yourself, take care of your teammate next to you and just keep moving forward. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Give me a, give me a veteran or a veteran organization that you're familiar with that has you excited about what they're doing right now. Honestly, the veteran organization I'm working with is the VA themselves. And the reason I say I'm excited to be working with them is because you see too much and hear too much about how the VA is dropping the ball on taking care of our veterans. Now, it is the VA healthcare system and all that stuff and not the VA side of what you guys are doing. Um, but with what I'm working with, I'd say it's the VA for sure, especially because of the, the uh, relationships that I've built through, through the VA and with the veterans that I work with, as well as through – because I'm working with um, some folks through the HUD Bash program and, and working with them. I, it's been – I think that's probably – the most influential and impactful that I would say at this point, because, you know, there's just so much support on each side and it's helping veterans like the target department I've worked with, the caseworkers I'm working with are helping veterans find houses. And as soon as they get into housing, then they're coming out and doing an application for us. So it's like, boom, your caseworkers are getting them into housing and then we're coming forward and we're getting them into cars. And next thing you know, boom, they're a productive member of society. They can get to their member. They can get their, to their doctor appointments, they can get all of their needs done and still have a car to get to and from work and all that stuff. So I would say the organization that's really moving me right now is VA and working hands-on with you guys outside of my personal stuff, just working to help veterans through the Keys to Progress program. Yeah. Outstanding. Alex, you brought so much value. This is, I mean, I didn't want, not that I doubted you, but I, you know, we, were, we weren't that familiar with each other coming into this, and I'm pleasantly surprised at how, how powerful and, and valuable this conversation's been. It's been a pleasure, sir. Well, good. Thank you. Yeah. Thank um, you. I didn't, honestly, I didn't know what to expect either. I was, I was like, um, I don't know what I should do. Should I write notes? Should I brainstorm some ideas of things to talk about? And then when you sent your, your email over giving me an idea of some of the questions, I'm like, oh, yeah, this – I can just have a conversation with this guy. Yes, so. that's exactly right. It's, it's it's the foundation of my podcasting career has been just being able to have conversations with people. Nothing too formal, but um, also you know making sure we, we get to a, a, a message and, and bringing value to the audience. So I think you and I have done that here today. For sure, I would agree. And I think you know if I, if I was to say anything, um, the last thing I would want to leave is just. Um, for your audience and any followers that you have, if they're, if they need to reach out for more information or want to look out for it, I would just say, go to the, uh, give you the email address and to the website. So it's uh, www.keystoprogress.com. And that'll actually link you through to a progressive site that has, has our keys to progress info in it. And then if, if, if for any veterans out there that may be in need, we work through veteran charities or through the VA. So reach out to your local, um, charity or caseworker for an application, but if you don't have one, just shoot an email over to keys to progress at progressive.com. Perfect. 
Alex Rushner, it has been a true pleasure. Thank you so much for your service, for your time, and for your continued uh, contributions to the veteran and the veteran community. Oh, absolutely. And thank you for all of your time today, too, as well, Tim. And thank you for the opportunity for being able to actually sit down and chat with you about this, because it is very moving to me to, to really support our veterans and actually work for an employer that is so, you know, supportive of supporting our veterans. So thank you for the opportunity. When my husband came home from Vietnam, he didn't really look into all his VA benefits. But now I've got some health issues, and I'm glad VA is there for me. To learn what benefits you may be eligible for, visit www.va.gov. Really cool program that Progressive Insurance has going on there. If you're interested in checking out that program, Keys to Progress, or uh, any other initiative that Progressive may have be going, uh, progressive.com slash social responsibility is where you can uh, learn more about what they're doing, especially the Keys to Progress program. Today's veteran of the day is Army veteran Shelby Johnson. Shelby served during World War II from 1941 to 1946 and survived the Bataan Death March. The Japanese forced Shelby and other American and Filipino soldiers stationed at the Bataan Peninsula to walk over 60 miles from Bataan to San Fernando in what became known as the Bataan Death March. Shelby was awarded two Bronze Stars, the Combat Infantry Badge, and the POW Medal for his service. Shelby passed away on September 11, 2017 at the age of 93. We honor his service. To read Shelby's full write-up and to nominate your own Veteran of the Day, visit blogs.va.gov. That does it for episode 62. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. I know there are a lot of options out there for entertainment, so I especially appreciate you spending your time listening to these veterans and their stories. You can follow us on Twitter at DEPT Vet Affairs for more stories from our community. We'll be back Monday with another benefits breakdown. I'm Timothy Lawson, signing off. <laughs>